in. Second and third John. I hope you've been reading with us this year. You only have to listen to me talk about this New Testament reading plan for about four more Sundays. And then we're going to move on to something new in 2023. But I hope that you've been tracking with us. If you are on course for reading the New Testament this year, we read this week 2 John, 3 John, Jude, Revelation chapter 1, and Revelation chapter 2. I think it goes without saying that the most neglected books in the entire New Testament are 2 John and 3 John. I mentioned earlier that you've probably never heard those books read out loud in church. You've probably never heard a sermon on those books in church. And I'll confess my own guilt and complicity in this. A few years ago, on Wednesday nights, we had a Wednesday night series called 66. And we went through the 66 books of the Bible, and we preached one sermon on each book of the Bible. So Genesis, one sermon. Exodus, one sermon. Leviticus, one sermon. All the way through. However, when we got to the New Testament, the schedule got a little bit tight coming up on the spring, and I had to combine a couple of books into one sermon. So that series 66 is actually 63 sermons. Philemon and Titus got mashed together. Now you may say Philemon, it's really short. Maybe Philemon is the most neglected book of the Bible. But the book of Philemon touches on the issue of slavery. So it gets a lot of attention, despite it being a short book. Then when we came to 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, I combined those into one single sermon. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. And I went back this week, I pulled up my notes to see what I said about 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, in that sermon, the series was 66. And just by way of confession, it was 95% 1 John. And then I said a little thing about 2 John and a little thing about 3 John. And so this is a good opportunity for us this morning to look at two books of the Bible that we don't pay a lot of attention to, but that are in your Bible for a reason. So let's just start with a little bit of background information about 2 John and 3 John. The author of these two short letters is John the Apostle. He wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation. Now some Bible scholars question if John the Apostle really wrote all of these books, but there's pretty good tradition, pretty good evidence internally and externally that John the Apostle is the author of these Gospels. Now, sometimes you guys roll my eyes, roll your eyes at me when I give you numbers, and I say, look, I'm telling you this so you can get the answer right when you're on Jeopardy someday. Look, there was a question on Jeopardy recently about the authorship of the book of Hebrews, and there was all sorts of debate about who got the answer right and wrong, and Jeopardy didn't even know the right answer. So I just want to give you these numbers in the event that you make it on Jeopardy, you don't embarrass us as a congregation, okay? The New Testament in Greek has 138,607 words. Luke wrote 27% of those words. So you usually hear people say, Paul wrote most of the New Testament. And what they mean is Paul wrote 13 or 14 books. He wrote the majority of the books. But Luke, when you look at the, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, Luke actually wrote 
the most words. Then Paul, 23%. Then here's John. John clocks in with 28,092 words, one-fifth of the New Testament. That's the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation. And then rounding out the top four is Matthew with 13%. John wrote a massive part of the New Testament. And one of the fascinating things to do is to look at the five books that John wrote and to listen to how John describes himself in each of those books. And so I'll just give you the the general idea. In the Gospel of John, John usually refers to himself as the Apostle Jesus Loved which is sort of an idiomatic way of saying that he was Jesus' closest friend during the incarnation when Jesus was on the earth carrying out his ministry. John and Jesus were very, very close. They had a unique relationship. And John notes this by calling himself the apostle Jesus loved. When you look at 1 John, John identifies himself as an eyewitness. In the opening part of 1 John, he says... We saw him, we touched him, we heard him. John's not talking about something secondhand or thirdhand or fourthhand. John's talking about something that he personally witnessed. He was an eyewitness to the incarnation, to the miracles, to the crucifixion, to the resurrection, and to the ascension. In the book of Revelation, you can look at the opening verses in Revelation. John describes himself as a servant a humble servant, which is fascinating. He doesn't say, hey, I'm the one that Jesus loved. We're BFFs, give me nucks, Jesus and me, high five. He says, I'm a humble servant. And when Jesus shows up at the beginning of his vision in Revelation 1, there's no buddy-buddy, chummy stuff. John is on his face in front of the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ. That leaves 2 John and 3 John. In 2 John... And in 3 John, John describes himself as the elder, which is a word in the New Testament that could be described as a pastor. An elder, a pastor, an overseer, all of those words are used interchangeably in the New Testament to describe the leadership of a church. And John describes himself here as an elder. And he says he's writing in 2 John to the elect lady and her children. And in 3 John, he says he's writing to Gaius, to the the beloved Gaius. Now, let me just make a few comments about this to help you understand where we're headed with this sermon. Church tradition tells us that the apostle John, after Jesus died and was resurrected and ascended to heaven, that the apostle John took care of Jesus's mother for the rest of her life Just like Jesus asked John to do when Jesus was dying on the cross. He said, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He provided for the care of his mother even in his dying moments. He kept the fifth commandment. And John did what Jesus asked him to do. He cared for Mary. Now, church tradition is a little bit divided. But at some point, it seems like John moved to the city of Ephesus. And if you visit the ruins of Ephesus today, you can go to this house. Some people call it. Mary's house. Some people call it John's house. 
And the tradition seems to be that at some point, John, and maybe John and Mary, moved to Ephesus, and they lived in this home. John in Ephesus was a pastor. He was a pastor of the church in Ephesus. When he writes these letters, he calls himself the elder. And I just want you to understand this. John's writing 2 John and 3 John. Not with the, I'm Jesus' best friend hat. Not with the, I'm an eyewitness hat. Not with the, I'm just a humble servant hat. But he's writing these two books with his pastor hat on. He identifies himself as the elder. He writes 2 John to the elect lady and her children. In Greek, the phrase is eklete curia, the chosen woman. Most Bible scholars think that that phrase describes a church. A few people say, no, there was an actual lady the church met in her home. But almost all Bible scholars say, no, no, no. In 2 John, when he writes to the elect lady, he's writing to the church. He's using that phrase, the elect lady, to say, you're the elect lady at Emmanuel. You're the church at Emmanuel in Odessa, Texas. And the reason that people give for that is when you read 2 John, there's not a lot of individual names. There are quite a few y'alls. Second person, plural, pronouns. Y'all, use guys. He's writing to a group of people. And maybe you noticed in 3 John, verse 9, he even says, I have written something to the church. And it seems like that what he wrote to the church, he's referring to in 3 John, might just be what we would call 2 John. So John, the elder, the pastor, first he writes a letter to a church, and then he writes a letter to a man named Gaius. Now, I don't have a lot of help for you here. There are three men named Gaius in the New Testament. We know nothing about any of them, and we have no idea if any of them are the Gaius here. So maybe one of these guys, you can connect the dots to 3 John, maybe not, but this is what we know. In 3 John, which is written to this man named Gaius, a common name, John is giving instructions about church life. So he writes 2 John to a church, the elect lady. He writes 3 John to Gaius, giving him instructions about how things ought to operate in the church. Which means when we look at 2 John and 3 John, the question we're dealing with is the church. These are two short letters about church life. So we may not know exactly about the elect lady. We may not know exactly which Gaius we're talking to. But we do know the big idea of 2 John and 3 John. And I've lifted the phrasing here from 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is the big idea of 2 John and 3 John. The church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Paul uses that phrase when he's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15, which, by the way, is a letter from a pastor to a pastor about a church. It's also a church book, a book describing how church ought to function. And in that book, Paul says to Timothy, the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Both of those words are construction words. 
They're building words. They describe a foundation that would be laid to make a building secure. They describe main supports that would be put up to make sure that a building is secure. And what Paul is telling Timothy, and what John is telling us in 2nd and 3rd John is, the church is a steward of the truth. And the thing that makes a Christian worldview strong and stable and secure is that it is built on the truth. Your identity as a Christian, a person who believes in God, who's put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who's given your life to follow Jesus, the security you have is that all of those things are true. The security of the Christian's life is not built on experience. It's not built on emotion. It's not built on the way the winds of culture are blowing. We lick our finger and we see, well, which way is the culture blowing today? Does the culture want us to believe this way? Does the culture want us to believe this way? That's not the stability that we find in our faith as Christians. The stability of the Christian worldview, the stability of your faith, the stability that we possess is built on the fact that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Increasingly, you are going to find that your worldview as a Christian is not popular in this world. The winds of culture are not on our side. Do you know what is on our side? The truth. And it's a pillar. And it's a buttress. And it's a foundation. And it gives stability to who we are and what we believe as the people of God. And what Paul is saying to Timothy and what John is saying to us is that the church, the gathered people of God, is the steward of that truth. It's the pillar in the buttress of the truth of the gospel. So, let me give you a quick overview of 2 John and a quick overview of 3 John, and then we'll ask why these books are important. 2 John, you can summarize 2 John with four simple, simple statements. Number one, walk in the truth. Number two, obey the commandments. Number three is really an elaboration of number two, love one another. And number four is guard the gospel. I don't know if you noticed when we read 2 John and 3 John earlier, but in the first couple of verses in 2 John, the word truth shows up five times. It just keep saying it over and over again, the truth, the truth, the truth, the truth. Then when you get to 3 John, he uses the word true or truth seven more times. These books are books about the truth. There is something that is true that will never change. It will never need to be updated. It will never be outdated. There is something that John's talking about here that is true. John says, I want you to keep the commands. And he summarizes those commands by saying you ought to love one another. This is 2 John, verse 5. I ask you, it's not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but one that we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to His commandments. Do you see the cyclical nature of those two ideas? Love one another. How do you do that? You keep the commandments. How do you keep the commandments? You love one another. 
And around and around it goes. Keep the commandments of God. Show love to each other. As you show love to each other, you need to keep the commandments of God. Those are at the heart of what he's talking about in 2 John. And then lastly, he talks about in 2 John, guard the gospel. And essentially, John says, there are teachers who have gone out who are false teachers. They are deceivers. They're deceptive. And you need to be on guard, and you need to give them no welcome, no greeting, no quarter. Have nothing to do with these false deceptive teachers. You have got to cut them out of your life entirely, and in doing so, you are guarding the truth of the gospel. So that's 2 John, summary form. Here's 3 John in summary form. There's four main characters. The first is Gaius, a man with a faithful walk. The second person we meet is Diotrephes, a man with a wicked agenda. The third is Demetrius, a man with a good testimony. And then lastly, there's John, a man with a pastor's heart. These are the four main players in 3 John. There's a commendation given to Gaius. And essentially the commendation is to Gaius, some teachers have gone out who are teaching the truth. And Gaius, thank you for welcoming those teachers into your church and for caring for them. Thank you for sending them on their way in a manner worthy of God. You are, Gaius, when you do this, a fellow worker. You may stay home, Gaius, but when you send these people out to preach the truth, you're a, a co-worker, a partner. You're a fellow worker with them in the gospel. And then we meet Diotrephes, a man who has a wicked agenda. Diotrephes will not show any hospitality to these gospel teachers. And if anyone in the church tries to show hospitality, Diotrephes is putting them out of the church. I just want you to notice what the Bible says about this man named Diotrephes so that you can avoid people like this. Look at 3 John. Diotrephes, he likes to put himself first. That's a big red flag. He likes to put himself first. Secondly, he does not acknowledge our authority. That is, he does not acknowledge apostolic authority. In John's day, you acknowledged apostolic authority by submitting to the leadership of the apostles and the people that they sent out. Today, you and I acknowledge apostolic authority by listening to to the apostolic record of truth recorded in the New Testament. Diotrephes, he likes to be first, and he doesn't want to listen to the Word of God. Number three, Diotrephes, he is talking wicked nonsense. He's a gossip. He's a slanderer. He has no control over his tongue. The Bible says if you can't control your tongue, your religion is worthless. Diotrephes was a religious man. He was actively involved in church, but he liked to be first. He didn't want to submit to the teaching of the apostles. He could not control his mouth. And number four, he refuses to welcome the brothers and he stops those who want to put them out of the church. That's Diotrephes. Then we meet Demetrius. Demetrius is a counterexample. We saw a good example in Gaius. 
saw a bad example in Diotrephes, and we meet Demetrius as another good example, and John says, Demetrius is doing exactly what we want you to do. Essentially, he's doing what we asked you to do in 2 John. He's welcoming the true teachers. He's guarding the gospel against the false teachers. He's showing hospitality, and he has a good reputation. Everybody speaks well of him. He has a good testimony. That doesn't mean he's good at standing up and telling you how he got saved. That means his reputation is upstanding. He's a man of character and integrity. Lastly, John. John, who has a pastor's heart. When you read these two books, here's the two things that concern John as the elder, as the pastor. He's concerned, number one, about the truth, and he's concerned, number two, about people. And contrary to what many people believe today, it's possible to be concerned about both of those things. You don't have to pick one or the other. You don't say, well, I just care about people, so I'm going to be lazy on the truth. You don't have to say, well, I just care about the truth, so I don't care if it hurts any feelings. Both of those things matter to John. The truth matters to John. He keeps talking about it over and over and over again. And people matter to John. He cares about these people, and he has a heart for these people. So that's 2 John, and that's 3 John. The question is, what do we do with all of this? Two short letters, very simple. What do we as a church take away from 2 John and 3 John? And I want you to understand the takeaway has to be for us as a church. This is not just an individual takeaway, but it's a corporate takeaway. This is John the elder, the pastor, writing. And he's writing to the elect lady, the church. And he says in 3 John, verse 9, I've written to the church. And he's talking to Gaius in 3 John. And he's saying this is how things ought to function as a church. In all of this material, two short letters, the church is in focus. So what do we as the church do with this? Number one, we remember that the truth of the gospel matters. You could say the truth of God's word matters. The truth matters. 28 verses in 2nd and 3rd John combined. 28 verses, 12 references to the truth. Almost every other verse, he's talking about the truth. The truth, the truth, the truth, the truth. The church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. If a church will not stand for the truth, it's not a church. They might have a sign out front that says, such and such church. They might have a Facebook page that says, such and such church. They might be old school and have business cards or a yellow page ad that says, such and such church, and they're under the church section. But a church that will not stand for the truth is not a church doesn't matter what they call themselves. They have ceased to be a church because the truth matters. And the church is called to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Yes, we would love for our government to recognize things that are true. Yes, we want that. 
Yes, we would like businesses to operate according to the truth, biblical principles. That would be a wonderful thing, would it not? Yes, it would be amazing if all of our schools would recognize the truth of God's Word. We would want that. We would long for that. But the government is not the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Neither is business. Neither are schools. It's the church that is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. And in 2 John, the specific point of truth that John is upset about deals with the incarnation, the birth of Jesus. Who was Jesus? And there were some people saying Jesus did not come in the flesh. They weren't saying that Jesus didn't come. They're saying Jesus came, but he really wasn't human. Yes, it was God on earth, but it wasn't God become man. He didn't really come in the flesh. We've talked about this fairly recently on a Sunday morning. It's the heresy of docetism. It's basically Superman Christology. Superman looks like a human, but he's not really human. Jesus looked human. He appeared to be human, but he's not really human. They have taken away something that is essential to who Jesus is. And John says they have set themselves against the truth. And then John says you need to set yourselves against those people. They've subtracted from the truth about who Jesus is. They are deceivers and they are not holding to the true teaching. So John says have nothing to do with them. Do not welcome them into your house. Now, you understand that John wrote this 2,000 years ago. And he was talking about, let me try to be clear with my, my pronunciation here. John was talking about itinerant preachers. People who were going from place to place, town to town. Itinerant teachers. You understand that we still need to be careful about that today. I would simply remind you that maybe a greater danger for you and me 2,000 years later is not itinerant teachers, but internet teachers. And by internet teachers, I'm talking about people you can watch on TV, people you can listen to on podcasts, people you can find on YouTube. Any digital media that you might consume. Listen, it's not that there's a higher percentage of false teachers now than there was 2,000 years ago. That's not the issue. The issue is that today you have virtually unlimited access to all of the teachers who are out there. In John's day, these false teachers had to come into your church, into your town, for you to hear from them. No longer. You just have to turn your phone on. And you can hear from all of them. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I feel like I'm about to hurt somebody's feelings. I want to be like John. I want to care about the truth and I want to care about people. So if you leave today thinking that I'm mad at you, you missed this little part of the sermon right here. I had in my mind about 10 different examples, illustrations I wanted to give you of media that you might consume that could potentially lead you astray. 
I've settled on one, and I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. I'm not. But this is the one that I've settled on. Not a week goes by that somebody asks me about the TV show called The Chosen. Let me just say a few things about The Chosen, okay? I've never watched it, and I'm not going to watch it. I don't want to watch it. I watched previous Bible movies that have come out, and I have found that the images and the words and the scenes from those movies get stuck in my head more than the Bible itself tends to get stuck in my head. So I'm not going to watch it. Now, if you watch it, I'm not mad at you. If you want to keep watching it, I'm not mad at you. But when you ask me, Pastor, have you watched it? Guess what I'm going to say? Haven't watched it. Oh, you should watch it. No, I'm not going to watch it. One reason is because I don't want those things to get stuck in my head more than than, than the, the Bible. Here's a second reason. There are multiple connections between the people making this TV series and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon church. Multiple connections. I'm not saying to you that everyone involved in it is Mormon. That's not what I'm saying to you. I'm saying there are multiple points of connection between the Mormon church, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and the people producing The Chosen. Let me give you one example. In the most recent season... They have the character playing Jesus quote the Book of Mormon. Quotes the book of 3 Nephi. It's not a Bible book, it's a Book of Mormon book. And he quotes it in the show. And a lot of people picked up on that and a lot of people pushed back. So much so that the executive producer, Dallas Jenkins, had to give an answer. He sort of got backed into a corner, and people said, why did you do this? Why did you have the Jesus character quoting the Book of Mormon if you say you're not associated with all of those things? Here's the answer he gave in an interview. The first thing he said is, 99% of people love the quote. Is that how we determine truth? Popular vote? 99% of people love the quote. Secondly, he said it wasn't a direct quote. It wasn't a direct quote. And what he means by that is, we didn't have him quote the entire verse, just part of the verse. Thirdly, he said, we thought it was a cool line. And fourthly, he said, I think it's theologically plausible that Jesus would have said something like this. You are going to have to determine for yourself if you watch something like The Chosen. I can't decide that for you. Believe me, I have no desire to monitor your TV habits. I don't, I don't want to do that. That's not my job. You're big people. You're intelligent people. I know the things that you do professionally and in this world. You're amazingly capable people. You can think this through for yourself. All I'm saying as your pastor is be very careful what you invite into your home and into your mind and into your heart. Be very careful. This is a a church, this is a religious movement, Mormon church, that says as God once was, man may become, and as God is now, 
man may become. A, God used to be a man, you can become a God. This is a, a denomination or a, a religion, a faith that says uh, the Trinity is not true. There are multiple numbers of gods in the cosmos. This is a faith that says Jesus, look, LDS people will look you in the eye and say Jesus died for sins. They don't mean what I mean when I say it. I mean Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. He became sin for us. He was cursed for us. What they mean is Jesus died for original sin. To bring you back to square one, and now it's up to you to save yourself. It's a works-based system of salvation. You determine for yourself what you will allow into your home in the form of TV programming, in the form of YouTube preaching, in the form of podcasts, in the form of what you live stream. But be careful, because the truth really matters. And the church, you and I together, are called to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth. And in life, you had better watch out for people who combine math with theology. Here's what I mean. Watch out for people who add sources of truth. People who say, the Bible's great, but have you read this? You need this other book. You need other sources of revelation. The Bible is great, but do you hear directly from God? God spoke to me. They're adding Sources of revelation, sources of authority. Be careful of people who subtract from the person and the work of Christ. That's what John's talking about. People who said Jesus did not come in the flesh. They're taking away something that the Bible says about Jesus. Be careful about people who take away part of who Jesus is or what He accomplished on our behalf. Thirdly, be careful of people who multiply requirements for salvation. People who say, yes, you need to trust in Jesus and you need to do this thing. Be careful. Number four, be careful of those who want to divide your loyalty to the truth of the gospel. I never cease to be amazed, never, at the lengths people will go to to defend a human preacher a TV show, a podcast, a movie, when there is some question of whether or not it lines up with Scripture. Be careful that your loyalty is not divided. The truth of the gospel matters. I'm going to give you the next three much more quickly. Are you ready? What do 2nd and 3rd John teach us about the church? Number two, being part of the local church matters. Being part of the local church matters. John's writing as a pastor, as an elder. He's writing to a church, to a man involved with the church, giving instructions about the church. And all I'm simply saying to you is that the New Testament has no category for someone who claims the name of Christ but doesn't want to be part of his body. Being part of an actual local church matters. In fact, 
in our new members class at Emmanuel, there's a point in every class where I look at the people new to our church and I say, if you don't stay here and get connected here, you better go somewhere else. You better find a place to be connected and to be involved and to join and to be a member and to be an actual part of the body of Christ. Being a part of a local church matters. Number three, being present at your church matters. It matters. We live in the age of the internet and podcasts and live stream. And in the midst of all of that media, I just want you to listen to what John says in 2 John 12. I have much to write to you. I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come and talk to you face to face. Look what he says at the end of 3 John, verse 13. I had much to write to you, but I'd rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. What he literally says in Greek is mouth to mouth. He's not talking about kissing. It's an idiom in the Greek language that means I want to look you in the eyes. I want to see you. I want to be able to reach out and touch you. I want to be present with you. I'm going to say some of these things using the technology of paper and pen and ink. We do that. We say some things to you with the technology of paper, pen, ink. We give you a newsletter. We put some things on the internet. We live stream, we podcast so that when you're gone, you can stay connected or you can keep up with us. But this is what I'm saying to you. It's better to be together. It wasn't that long ago that we weren't together and we all realized it's not the same. You can watch something on a screen, it's not the same. I know it's not the same and you know it's not the same. It wasn't the same to stand in this room and look at a camera right back there by that pole with three people in the room. It's not the same. It's not the same when you're at home on the couch watching Alone, it's not the same. John knew it wasn't the same. John knew nothing about podcasts, live streams, the internet, TV, none of that. But he did know this. There's some stuff I just want to say to you face to face. I don't want to put it down on paper. I just want to be there with you. I want you to hear it from me. And I want you to be present with me. Being a part of a local church matters. Being present at your church matters. Number three, being connected to your church matters. Being connected to your church matters. You know, sometimes people use a saying, a phrase. Sometimes you see it on t-shirts. And the saying goes like this. Don't go to church be the church. I can't tell you how much I hate that phrase. I literally do not have words to say to you how much I detest that sentiment. I understand what people are trying to say when they say it. I just don't think that phrasing is helpful at all. Because in the Bible, a church 
The Greek word is ekklesia. A church is a congregation or an assembly. Congregations congregate together. Assemblies assemble together. That is part of who we are as a church, is being together. That's why being part of a local church matters, being present at your church matters, and being connected to your church matters. Did you hear the very last thing John said in 3 John 15? Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends. Each by name. I told you when people come to our new member class, I say to them, if you're not going to join here, you should join somewhere else. You need to join somewhere else. You need to be part of a church. Another thing that I say in every single new members class is I point out that when you sign our church covenant, our membership agreement, One of the things that you agree to do, it's straight out of our church covenant, is to warmly welcome guests. Meaning, when you walk into this place, it's not just about what you can get out of this place. It's about being connected to the people who meet in this place. When you come to church, I hope you learn things. I hope I I share things with you that make you think, thought-provoking, things you didn't know. I want you to learn. But this is not a place for only religious education. This is not just a place to come learn stuff. A church, more than being like an educational institution, a church ought to be like a family reunion where you gather together with people that you know and you greet those people and you speak to those people. You acknowledge those people. You know something about those people. You look those people in the eye. You're not just talking with pen and ink. You're not just messaging over an app. But you're there face to face with real people. And you've gathered together to acknowledge the authority of the apostolic witness, the authority of the Scriptures. We sit under the authority of the Word. We don't put ourselves first. We put others first. And we welcome the brothers. We greet the brothers. We call the brothers by name. And we listen to the Word of God and we respond to the Word of God in worship. And then we leave this place with good news. With something that's true. Something that the world probably doesn't know or understand or hasn't accepted, but we leave this place to take good news out of this place. But it begins with the people of God meeting together, worshiping together, reading the Word of God together, talking to God together, greeting one another together, and then dispersing to take good news to the world.